Hello, everybody. How are you? This is Donya. How are you doing today? Um, I'm here with Rachel Silverman. We're having some problems. How are you? This is Donya. How are you doing today? Can you turn your thing down just a little? Okay. Um, we're, we're having some technical difficulties adding Brian into the show. I'm sorry about that, you guys. Um, but this is, uh, we're here today with Rachel Silverman, and Rachel is a Jewish genealogist. So, uh, how are you, Rachel? I'm really well. How are you, Donya? I'm good. I'm good. We're really excited about this show today. We want to talk, we really want to learn more. I'm very excited because I know absolutely nothing about Jewish genealogy, but this is something that I'm really looking forward to because. It has a, to me, in my opinion, it, it's a lot like African American genealogy as really? far as trying to, you know, find out more about your family and the difficulty in researching it. And that's one of the things that we're really trying to do. Um, so, first, I want to, you know, get some. Um, okay. Um, I want to get some people, get some shout outs and say hi to everybody. We are adding Brian in and hopefully you guys will be able to hear him. Um, I'm not sure what's happening. Brian, can you hear me? Can you say anything? No, we don't even hear him. Shoot. Hopefully it'll pop up. I don't know what's going on, but we have one of our regulars and it's our cousin Martha Taylor. She's from um, South Carolina, so she's saying hello from South Carolina. Uh, and then there's Ruth. That's my mom. That's my your mom. mom. Hi, mom. How are mom. you? <laughs> That's Ruth. Hi. How are you today? So I'm I'm really excited to talk with you. So let's um let's just kind of jump right into it. I want to know how did you get started in your Jewish genealogy? Well, funny you should ask. It's because of my mom. <laughs> um, when we were kids, uh, my mom showed us this huge collection of stuff that she had collected when she was a kid, and it was at the beginning of the internet, and we were all kind of new at this whole email thing, um, but we got to reach out to a professor in the South who helped us do a lot of research on my maternal grandfather's side, and they were they were from Minsk, um, and that kind of uh, lit that flame for me and for my brother. And uh, I just kind of, I ran with it after a number of years. Uh, the, the Jewish genealogy world uh, kind of grew exponentially over the next you know, 20 years on the internet. And um, now as an adult, I get to utilize all of those resources and help other folks. This is a really real uh, kind of research that we do. It affects people in their lives even today. So um, it was something that I felt very passionate about, and I honed my my skills over a, over a very long time. And now um, I'm helping people trace their roots back to Europe too. Oh, okay. So, did you um, do you have a, a a business as far as this is concerned? Do you do this for pay, or do you are are you you know just freely just giving the information out? Oh goodness. Well. I, 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 when I was young, I was kind of did, you know, doing little projects for people that they asked, but now I am, I have my own business, um, my eponymous business, Silverman Genealogy Services out of New York City. 
Wow, that's awesome. So we have to make sure that we put that up there for people so that, you know, at the end of the show, we'll put that, your link up to get in touch with you. And, you know, if they want to do yeah. more with you, that that would be awesome. Yeah, I love so, to hear from people. I do projects of all different sizes. Everybody's different and everybody has different needs. So I try to provide a service that, that's tailored to everybody. Okay. And I want to let my viewers know, as you know, always ask questions because that's why this is where you get your free info. So, you know, yes, you can definitely find out more about, you know, how to start researching, where to go and things of that nature. So we go, before we get into the other stuff, I wanted to know, did you find anything? Um, what, what was the most interesting thing that you found as far as your Jewish, as far as your research is concerned? Um, interesting, the, the interesting part was like for my own family, um, was being able to separate fact from fiction. Um, everybody has a lot of family legends and family stories that get passed down and, and, uh, dramatic, small dramatic moments become big dramatic moments through the generations. And, uh, one of the truths that we learned was that my, uh, great grandfather, no, my great-great-grandfather and, no, sorry, great-grandfather, he and his brothers were all um, draft dodgers from the Russian army. Uh, they were conscripted in Minsk, and one by one, as they were conscripted, they left. They escaped uh, just because the fate for Jewish men in the Russian army wasn't so great. If you weren't educated, you couldn't actually get a post uh, doing something that was safe to do, like accounting. So if you couldn't, then you had to you had to escape. You had to get out of there. Uh, so we actually found the draft dodging notices um, with the help of this of this uh, professor um, in the American South, um, who was actually from Minsk. He located the draft dodging notices, um, the 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 ruble fines that were that were levied on the family and names of all the family members as if to embarrass them. Uh, and it happened year after year after year as each boy was conscripted and each one didn't show up. So that wow. was the truth that we learned uh, was actually, actually correct. Um, we also learned that my great-grandparents' uh, story of their courtship and marriage wasn't quite what we thought it was. Um, I found out many years later that um, that my great grandparents met in New York City. Well, we knew that, um, but the story was that he was desperate to marry her, and he chased her all the way to Dayton, Ohio, where she joined her brothers, <laughs> ran out of money, and couldn't run anymore. Um, wow! So that was the story. But what I actually learned was that they did meet in New York City. Um, they both of my great grandparents traveled together, unmarried, with my great great grandmother to Dayton, Ohio, where they married and had their family. It wasn't so much a chasing scenario as we thought it had been. Right. But, you know, stories change and evolve. And it was it was interesting to, uh, to present my grandfather with this information. It didn't really make any difference to him. It didn't make any difference. <laughs> Not at all. So did you find that you had like certain family members who were in the position where, because it sounds insane, you know, for all genealogists, they have to hear the oral story, but then prove it to be true or false. Yes. That's yes. just the, yes. that's the overall thing in genealogical research. Right. So it, did it ever come a time where 
you heard the oral story, you proved it false and people got upset behind it? I've had people just simply not accept it. Upset at the results of the research just because it's what they asked for. But I've had have had folks just simply unable to um, to reconcile the two in their minds. Uh, right. Everybody, you, know, you get emotionally connected to these stories, and they are stories. They're what we call sacred stories. They're apocryphal. They're part of your family, and if you live your whole life with a certain narrative. Sometimes it's just hard to grasp on to what the paperwork says. Right. And, um, I mean, I've had people come to me after they have a non-parent event in their uh, in their DNA uh, result, which means that the parent they thought was their parent isn't. Yeah, that's that's so deep. Non-parent events are really really tough, and once yeah. you found out the real truth about the about my client's parents and their father in particular, um, my client's brother, who was an older gentleman, was really unable to kind of. Um, to kind of reconcile the two pieces of information. And he was just, he didn't want to hear it anymore, and that was that. I mean, you can't really wow. make people accept what you have on paper. So, I mean, I tell all of my clients, it's up to you what you do with the information I find for you. Um, but I'm only going to give you the truth. That's right. That's right. Okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to have Brian. Brian is unable to log in i don't know why he was able to log in earlier when we did our tech check it's not coming through it's not helping him but we are fighters <laughs> and we do things together no matter what so brian will be in watching the show he actually is watching the show now and his questions because he's better with the, the these types of questions because he does this type of research right. um so his questions will be in our comment section. So I'm going to go ahead and put his first question up. And that first question is, can you talk about Eastern European Jewish naming conventions? Sure can. Sure can. <laughs> um, well, so Eastern European Jews had a tradition when it came to given names. And by given names, I mean first names or forenames. Um, depending on where they were in Eastern Europe, sometimes people had one, two, or even three given names that they may have used at, you know, interchange interchangeably and on any different kind of document. So that's a big challenge that we have sometimes in Eastern European Jewish genealogy. Um, those who had two names often used them uh, you know, on all of their travel documents, but sometimes they didn't use both and they would use the second one or they would use the first one. It just, it didn't matter to them really. Sometimes they were just called by the second name. It's like somebody being named Marianne being called Anne. It's the same deal. So uh, once they got to the United States, they kind of did have to settle on a name that they were going to use. And sometimes they took on their second given name as a middle name um, as American naming, naming conventions uh, did allow. And uh, so going back to um, Eastern European Jewish traditions and naming conventions, it was most often the case where um, one would name their child after a deceased relative and deceased being very, very important. Um, uh, infant mortality in Eastern Europe was a, was a real thing and it happened a lot. Children died of communicable diseases that we cure every day, that we inoculate against every day. So 
in order to kind of stave off uh, stave off the evil eye, which was part of the big um, uh, tradition of superstition in Eastern European Jews. Um, the eagle eye and the angel of death were both bad things. So when you were going to name a child, you didn't speak the child's name until his bris, uh, his ritual circumcision on his eighth day of life. And then you had to make sure you name, you gave him a name for a deceased relative. Because if you were to name him for a living relative, the angel of death may come around with his big scroll of names and mistake the baby for the older for the older person. And wow. then you would have an infant death. So uh, in order to kind of try to keep their babies around uh, and help them live to adulthood, you would give them the name of somebody not living. And that tradition lives even today in Ashkenazi Jewry all over the world. It's just a wow. tradition. We're not, we're, you know, we ha we all believe in modern medicine, so we're going to take the steps that we need to take to help our children. But it's still just a tradition that we have. Um, and in Sephardic communities, the tradition is the opposite. It's a great honor to name a new baby after a grandparent who's living. And they want their they want the grandparents of the babies to see them, you know, to see themselves honored in that way. Yeah. So yeah, that's like that's like giving them the flowers before they, you know, give me my flowers before I go. Yeah, I, I definitely understand right. that. Yeah, that's right. So um in and the American Jewish population of Ashkenazim um also have the tradition of not necessarily naming their children the same names as their deceased relatives, but using the first initial or you know, the first initial of both their names um, to kind of give a you know, a namesake scenario. So you don't have to use the same name in order to honor someone. If you use the same initial or the same Hebrew name, that's considered also um, a way to honor your deceased relative as as an American Ashkenazi Jew. Okay, so it's it's now that is so different from. Is I guess we're more like what, what was the the name of the other type of Jew? I didn't get it. Party. Okay, that sounds more like them, as far as um, African American research. Because when we do our research, with we would not be able to find some of our families if the naming was not done in that in in the way of naming after someone who's already living. Um, our families. We're able to find a lot of our white families because of the naming convention. Wow. So if wow. yeah, it, it's really it's really strange, you know, with, for us to be able to. I can I can say to you that there are a thousand John Yeldells in the world, but <laughs> John Yeldell, that's how I know I connect to sure. certain, yeah. you know, um, Caucasian American or European Americans who are who are Yeldells. And this is who they come from. They come from the a Phoebe is the name that is just really it's well known in that family. The name Phoebe and things of that nature. So yeah, this is that's totally different. That's that's awesome. Um, so the great thing about um, about skipping generations with naming after an ancestor is that by utilizing the you know, basically using the number of of children in a succeeding generation um, with that given name, we might be able to work our way backwards 
to say that these children's great grandfather may have been named that same name. So if you have four different Abrahams in one generation, you might be able to say, hmm, maybe their great grandfather was named Abraham and that's why all of them have this name. So it'll kind of allows us to reach back a little further than we might be able to go on paper. So does it so well sticking with the naming, do you use that in your research? Do you go, you know, is that something that you use in order to find more purpose? Like how do you go deeper? What are the some of the things that you use to go deeper into Jewish genealogy? Like I know it's it's difficult. Oh yeah, um, with Jewish genealogy, we have a lot of um, a lot of setbacks when we get to a certain point in time. Um, European Jews didn't have inheritable surnames until they were forced to take them on. Um, it happened at a kind of slow pace between 1787 in. Uh, in the Austrian Empire, all the way up through 1845 in uh, in Prussia. So, and in between there, you had uh, you had other kingdoms finally forcing their Jewish population to adopt an inheritable surname, um, which is mostly for you know, census, surveying, taxation, and conscription uh, purposes. So, before okay. the before 1787 in the Austrian Empire, it was kind of fair game. It was kind of a a wild west of whether Jewish communities utilize surnames or not. So when we have a situation where there were not surnames used, uh, we have to rely on the descriptors that were given uh, for these people and for the, the, the name groups. So if you have a family that utilized a, a very specific group of given names from generation to generation or skipping a generation, we might mm -hmm. be able to, you know, use our um, our powers of supposition to kind of make a you know to make a proof argument or make a theory that these folks are the ones that we're looking for they're in the right town they're of the right ages they have the right occupation and so on and so forth um, okay. to kind of put things together if we don't have a surname which so often we don't Okay, so mom said or Max. What 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 does she mean by or Max? Max. Like, yeah, that's what mom said. Oh uh, well, okay. So my mom is referring to um, the American generations. Uh, one of the first American generations of our family. Uh, we had a bunch of Maxes um, in the United, born in the United States, named after a man whose name was Morhi, or or in English it'd be Mordecai. Okay. So um, a lot of times American families would utilize the same uh, English name to name children after um, somebody with a foreign sounding name. So Mordecai is a, is a Yiddish version of Mordecai. And Mordecai wasn't a very popular name in the United States at the time. And I don't think it's ever been a very popular name in the United States. So in order to kind of um, maintain their assimilation uh, into the American fabric, Jewish families would choose an English name uh, to use as a namesake. So now for our family and for a lot of other families, the name Max is indicative of the name Mordechai or Mordechai. Okay. So, you go. All right, so I have, I have a, um, another question from Brian that sticks on surnames. So I'm going to go with his, but I also have a question for someone 
I'm going to go with his question. For, I'm going to go with Brian's question first. And that is, what ways did surnames change as Jewish people immigrated to other parts of the world? And then the next question is, it's not on the same um it's not on the same as this. So I'll go, let's stick with the surname and then we'll go to the next question. I think the real question is how did Jewish surnames not change all over the world? <laughs> so many ways that um, that that Jewish migrants kind of um, molded and crafted their old world surnames to become more a part of their new adopted homeland. So um, I know that in Scotland, Kahan became Keen, K-E-A-N-E, Keen. And um, in the United States, we have people coming with the name Brownstein, B-R-A-U-N-Stein, changing their name to Brown, B-R-O-W-N. Um, I had a client whose name was Greenstein, and the family um, also utilized the surname Stanley on and off, taking the taking the part of the name and morphing it into Stanley. So we have a lot of different ways that surnames can be molded using their beginning parts, using their ending parts. We also have surnames that don't make any sense when compared to their original names, like my family. Um, the original surname of one of my mom's branches of the family was Schiffrovitz, and that came from Lithuania. Um, our family, our ancestors, decided to change his name from Schifrovitz to Epstein. Now, there doesn't seem to be a lot of rhyme or reason to it. We know that there were other Epsteins in the family, but not close relations. Um, we were just kind of, we kind of think that, um, that the goal was to maintain a Jewish, ethnic Jewish surname, but to make it more pronounceable. And so they stayed with Epstein. Other members of the family changed their name from Schifrovitz to Schiffer, Schiffman, and Schiff. But Epstein is us. Okay. Well, guess who's decided to join us? He is finally not decided. The, the gods have brought Brian in. Hello. I'm so excited. Thank you so much. Can you hear me okay? <laughs> yes. Yes. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. So I have, um, changing the subject off of surnames, I wanted to get to another person. Um, and his name is Michael Sussman. And Michael Sussman asks, how can we find Russian draft dodging notices? I guess this is switching us gear, our gears a little bit. Yeah. Okay. So Russian draft dodging notices were often published in the local newspapers. And um, I know the newspapers in Minsk and I think also in Grodno um, have been noted to have draft dodging notices. It wasn't um, it wasn't a standardized thing, I don't think, um, but it would require a lot of local research. So make sure you get a local researcher in those areas that knows about uh, draft dodging notices, uh, knows about the um, the escape patterns of Jewish conscriptees, um, and is able to get to those places sometimes. I know that the Belarusian archives are sometimes difficult to, to sift through, so you need somebody who's skilled um, and, and knows the lay of the land there. Okay. So places so, like newspapers.com, you can't, they can't help you. <laughs> <laughs> so one of, the, one of the other questions I had for you is, you know, I, when we were doing the technical check, I spoke about um, 
finding out that I had a Jewish great grandfather that no one knew anything about. Um, felt really excited, you know, the, the journey that we went on to actually discover his name. And then I saw that he came from Russia. And I kind of freaked out because Russia's, a, even now, I mean, Russia's a, an enormous country. Yeah. But the Russian cut, you know, the Russian empire was enormous. And I was thinking, oh my God, how, how on earth am I going to figure out where in the Russian empire he actually came from? Now, for, for me, for my family, it was really, we were lucky because it was actually stated on his death certificate. Great. But if you, you know, if you're new to Jewish genealogy and you see, oh, my grandparents or great grandparents came from Russia. Right. What, is there any advice that you can give them to kind of narrow down that search? Well, it's certainly a big place. And um, so the one, so the, the places that we have to, we have to start with are what we know now. So you start with your census records, sometimes rarely, but sometimes um, the census records will actually give um, the province uh, of the Russian Empire where people came from. Um, it's not common and certainly uh, city names are not common to be listed on the censuses, but I've seen those there too. So start with your censuses and then work your way up. Look at vital records like you found. Your vital records are a great source uh, for places of origin for not only, not only the decedent, but for their parents. Um, so if you've exhausted your vital records and your censuses, try to dig for naturalization records. Um, especially if they were naturalized after, I think, 1904, there's a lot of information. Once naturalizations were were, were a, a nationalized process, um, then a lot more information was asked of, the, uh, asked of those petitioning for naturalization. So you get a lot of, um, a lot more specifics that way. Now, before 1904, um, naturalizations in the United States could be done at any court level. They could be done at city, county, state, and you could also do it, I think, nationally in some places. So uh, it's kind of a crapshoot, but if you can't find it for your own ancestor, try to do um, try to do family, other male relatives who might have been naturalized later, um, who could have been part of the more national application. Uh, that asks for more information. So don't stop with your one relative, kind of branch out and see who else you can find if you can't nail it down with your own. Um, and make sure that you write down every clue that you've got because there are so many different ways to phonetically spell these town names. <laughs> and sometimes just, there's no there's no logical clue. And that's when we turn to um, to Jewish Gen, which is a great resource to help us out with um, interpreting the different spellings of these town names. Jewish Gen is a fantastic resource that I use all the time. And they have a database um, called their Communities Database. And the Communities Database will allow you to do a search um, in, in many different ways in case you just can't find it. Uh, and it'll give you the different ways that the town is spelled or what other countries it belongs to at certain different times. And I know we're going to talk about that later. Um, but that's that's the way to do it. That's how I do it. That's how everybody does it. Well, it's a good point because, um, again, my ancestor, Lev, he came from a place called, and it depends on whether you were Russian or whether you were Belarusian, the Belarusians pronounced it Berisaw. B A R Y S A W. Sorry, that should be a V. I keep forgetting W. Right, so I mean, like W's these. and V's are very interchangeable at that point. So <laughs> but the Russians call it B 
Borisov. And I was that's, getting that's, confused because yeah. I thought it was. Well, that's just, um, okay, Belarusian and Russian are different languages, but they're very, very closely related. So when you have a translations from one language to another, you're going to have other kind of interpretations when you translate it to English, because obviously they don't use the Roman alphabet, they use the Russian alphabet, the Cyrillic alphabet. So when we're doing a transliteration, there are lots of different ways to, uh, to indicate an odd type vowel that we just don't have. So when you talk about Borisov or Barisov, it's just it's a very slight difference, but we all know that it means the same place. So that's good. Um, so can you talk more about um, JewishGen.org? Yeah. And what it does and how how it helps? JewishGen is a fantastic organization based here in New York City. Um, they work to help aggregate um, different databases that are uh, hosted by special interest groups um, that are related to certain geographic areas in uh, all over the world having to do with Jewish genealogy. So on JewishGen, there are so many different resources and so many different databases that are pulled together and searchable there. Um, they have their own databases, obviously the, uh, the community's databases, their own, and um, they have what's called the, uh, the family finder where people can um, put in their family names and the towns associated with their names to try to connect with others who are doing research on those families as well. Um, they have a specific Holocaust database um, that allows you to search Holocaust related, related items that they have um, aggregate, aggregated on their site. Um, and you know, it's, it's one of my very favorite places to start uh, but it allows me to also like branch out my own research into other databases like Litvaxin, which which focuses on uh, Lithuanian, Latvian, and, and Belarusian Jews. Um, and it also aggregates uh, databases from Gesher Galicia, which it focuses on um, geographic areas that are mostly in the former Austrian Empire that also belong to modern-day Poland and Ukraine. And JRI Poland, uh, which is, of course, mostly Poland and also encompasses certain areas that used to belong to the Prussian Empire and um, are also part of modern day Ukraine. And so some of them do overlap, but Jewish Gen is the place to start. It's the home of Jewish genealogy. Wow. Okay. So actually, because you mentioned Galicia, it um, brings me quite nicely to my, to my next question. Um, because again, I did a DNA, you know, uh, uploaded my DNA results to um, MyHeritage, uh, which is, I, I believe it's Israeli owned. So it's, it's very popular with, with the Jewish diaspora. Mm -hmm. um, and I was getting hits on places called Galicia. And I thought, oh, wow, I've got Spanish hey. Jewish. I've got Spanish Jewish ancestry because Galicia was the first place that popped into my head. Then I realized, then I found out down the line, oh, okay, there was a place in Eastern Europe that doesn't exist anymore that was called Galicia. And I just wanted to have you talk a little bit about how important it is to understand how those boundaries for all those Eastern European countries and even Germany, because Germany yeah. as we know it now didn't exist for a long time. Correct. Correct. We um, had all these empires going on at the time. Yes. Yeah. So Galicia was a region in the Austrian Empire, which was then became the Austro-Hungarian Empire, um, that had a massive Jewish population. 
and it was German speaking. So a lot of the records that we find from Galicia are written out in the Roman alphabet, which is very helpful. And um, a lot of the books are in German. So we find a, an interesting combination of uh, Yiddish and German used within these books. Um, a lot of times the, uh, the books, the, the record books, the actual record books that are used by the Jewish community to keep track of their vital records um, turn out to be Latin language baptismal books. So they just kind of reuse the different columns in a way that was appropriate for the community. But they were still required to use those specific books um, by the Austrian Empire. Cool. And how important is it to really get your head around just how drastic those those boundaries in that part of the world were changing? Well, um, it's really well demonstrated on Jewish Men's Community Database uh, to tell us exactly how those political borders were changing and you know, realizing that the towns didn't move, but the borders did. So we have a lot of towns that you know, belonged to three and four different countries over, over many, many decades. But before World War II and even after during, um, you know, during the time of the USSR, um, borders, uh, political borders in Europe were very, very fluid. So in the United States, you'll see people putting on a census that they were born in Russia and that they were born in Poland and then they were born in Lithuania, which are all true. It's all true, but it's just at different at different years, uh, the truth changed, and they were they were aware of that. So, I like to use an example of the town of Drahovo in Ukraine, um, which is a very small place and only had a few hundred Jews around 1935. Um, but the, the town of Drahovo belonged to the Kingdom of Hungary. It belonged to Czechoslovakia, it belonged to the Ukrainian SSR, part of Russia, um, and then it belonged to Czech Republic, um, I think at one point. So the town of Drahovo has records that are held in three different countries. They're held in Romania, they're held in Ukraine, and they're held in Czech Republic, or Czech, you know. So, it's um, it can be crazy, and that's when I like to utilize a resource called Roots to Roots, the Roots to Roots Foundation, um, that does a really great job of outlining where records from a certain place are are held all over Europe. That's really helpful. That's a resource I didn't know about, and I'm going to have to check that one out. Do it's great, absolutely wonderful. It's absolutely absolutely wonderful, but there's one caveat when it comes to Roots to Roots and resources like that, um, record collections are being moved all the time to better locations, to renovated locations, just to different archival institutions all over Europe. So once you actually go to Roots to Roots, then you need to go to your local researcher who you've found through any other resources. Um, Jewish Gen also has a, a place where people can recommend researchers overseas. And the only person who can really verify where things are is a local. So use Roots to Roots as a guide to understand that your records might be held in several different countries and then reach out to your local researcher and have them verify before they go. Well, one thing that you said actually gives me, gives me, lifts my heart. Because again, when I first started doing uh, Jewish 
research in Europe, I just automatically assumed that all the records were destroyed during World War II because obviously, you know, towns and villages were leveled and I figured, yeah. well, wherever they were housed, but, you know, you're talking about marriage records and uh, bris and, and bat mitzvah right. records. It's a very, very common misconception and even exists among the Jewish community today that all the records were somehow destroyed during World War II. And while it's true that a lot of a lot of complexes and buildings and, and important locations were leveled. Um, civil records like marriages, births, and deaths, and a lot of taxation records and um, other civil type records were held at civil centers and not in religious centers. So if those civil centers survived the war and, and the records were successfully transferred to an archival institution, then uh, chances are good that you'll find something. Um, yeah, most of the record loss um, that actually happened happened way after the war. Um, or you have in, you have instances where record books were were hidden um, in order to preserve the record during the war. So during the Nazi occupation of Eastern Europe, um, a lot of record books were kind of stashed away in basements or inside walls or in floors. Um, which are only even nowadays being unearthed as buildings are renovated and torn down and new structures are being put up. So, Can you talk a little bit about the, the passports? Because that is what we were chatting about during the rehearsal just blew me away. Yeah, actually, yeah. Vilna passports um, were, were a big deal when they were finally found. Um, in Lithuania, uh, before World War II, Lithuania was, kind of, was, a, was a newly independent country. And um, people who were living there, even if they were born there, they needed what was called an internal passport to kind of verify their citizenship. So um, everybody had them. But once the Nazis occupied Lithuania, all the Jews were required to surrender their internal passports. And this happened in Riga and Latvia as well. Um, Jews were forced to surrender their internal passports so that they couldn't travel even internally in Lithuania. You didn't need it to travel like travel internationally. You needed a different passport for that. Um, but these passports contained photographs, people's birth dates, their maybe even their parents' names, the place where they you know their address, um, all kinds of information that is just so precious to us today. So um, very recently, um, a whole cache of, uh, of internal passports were, were discovered in Vilnius, and we thought that they were all gone. But they were just they were just hidden away by somebody who wanted to preserve them. Um, so I always tell my clients, even if we've looked through all the resources that are available, wait 10 years. There's going to be more. <laughs> and from what I remember, you said that they sent those passports to a museum in Israel. Which... I, I thought that they had, but I couldn't. I, I went to look back and um, see if I could find more information on that, but I wasn't able to, to verify what I thought. Okay. So, but I do know that that collection is currently being digitized and um, a lot of them are available on Litvaxig. Wow. The, the, da the data is available on Litvaxig and then you can order um, a photocopy or you know, a digital oh, wow. image of that. Um, I think amazing. it's a Litvaxig archive. So it's very, very exciting. No, that's really, really amazing. Because I was wondering, is it kind of a practice to send newly discovered records to, to Israel? Um, as a kind of central repository? Sometimes. If you have a place where the Jewish community is no longer active, where there are no more Jews there, or if the uh, local government is not equipped to, um, to really handle 
the, the types of documents that they're looking at, then yeah, they'll send them on to Yad Vashem in Israel. Um, and, and Yad Vashem has a whole staff and a lot of funding to, to do the kind of digitization um, and archiving uh, that is needed for these really, really precious records. Cool. And I just want to tell everyone who's watching, um, I know we're hitting you with a lot of kind of um, repositories and websites. We will have links to everything that we discuss and it'll be in the, the text bit of um bit of the archive video. So you'll be able to see them and click and go and explore. Exactly, exactly. So we have a couple of questions in the comments section. Let me um start first with Mary Wright. Mary Wright said, and this is going back to the um, surnames. Uh, she says, I have an ancestor with the surname Freeman, F-R-E-E-M-A-N. She said they are also listed as Fruman, F-R-U-M-A-N. When I looked up the surname on the internet, it said it was a Jewish surname derived from Argentina. Are you familiar with that surname? Now, I must say, before you answer this question, I'm actually very much interested in it as well because we have several, several Freemans where in our family name, and it actually turned out that some of them were spelled Fruman just like that. Well, Fruman is a German language surname, and there, um, there was and is a very large uh, Jewish community in Argentina. Argentina was a very common place for people to emigrate to um, from Eastern Europe. Um, so the name Fruman may have been their original surname when they left. Um, a massive you know, segment of the Jewish population in Europe had German language surnames because the Austrian Empire was the first was the first kingdom to come down and say, hey, you have to have surnames so that we can keep track of you. So German language surnames for, for Jews all over the world are very, very common. So wow. when you have a name like Fruman, it is a Jewish name. Um, it, it derives from the word from meaning religious. It's a Yiddish word meaning meaning religious. So if you, if you were a Fruman, you were a religious man. And that might be a name that they had chosen for themselves. So when you came, we went, it, it's very easy for me to see the name Fruman being kind of morphed into Freeman in the United States, uh, just because it was a more American sounding, English sounding, um, less Jewish sounding. So um, there are a lot of Jewish, there are a lot of Jewish families in the US and I'm sure in Argentina and Canada and the UK with the name Freeman. And we have a question from one of my newly discovered uh, Jewish cousins, Claudia Bullock. Hi, Claudia. Um, her question is, what does it mean if there are six siblings and their two parents all are known to have immigrated to the Baltimore, Washington, D.C. area. Mm -hmm. And yet, and this, this is the bane of our research, actually, and no naturalization records have been found for any of them. Yet the census indicates that all six siblings were naturalized. So you have six people who claim that they're naturalized, but we can't find records for them. Okay, so usually children who were minors at the time, you know, who were minors, um, when at the time of their immigration, most often the father in that family would be naturalized. And so the children and the wife were, were all naturalized with him. Now, if the, if the father, if you can't find the father's naturalization papers, and it was kind of early, you said your family, um, your Jewish family immigrated around the 1880s and 90s. That's right. 
probably looking at a, a county court or a, um, a very, very localized uh, court that would have affected that naturalization. Okay. So try to find out from the census records when the father reported his naturalization. Um, it would have said, you know, naturalized and then a year, N-A and then a year after. Um, if he doesn't say that he was naturalized, if it always says A-L for alien on all of his census records, um, then you're still probably looking for um, a, a local type of naturalization. Um, you really want to focus on the dad, though. Yeah, we have to do a lot more work on life. He's a man of mystery. We know he we know he came here, <laughs> but we can't find anything more for him. <laughs> well, and if you the original surname, maybe that'll be on the naturalization papers. Yes. Well, we're we're hoping that Claudia's great aunt will have an epiphany and remember what that enormously long surname that they shortened was. Maybe it was like Kahanovich or something of that ilk. It's always something long and, and spelled in a billion different ways. Yeah. yeah Claudia <laughs> said that you can't find census records for that. <laughs> <laughs> if all the kids say that they were naturalized and they all give the same year, it's a good indicator that it was their dad who was naturalized. Um, I mean, it's, it's tough. If you can't find them on a census, you're kind of stuck. So I would say use your um, use your wildcard searches as much as you can. Um, Family Search is the best website that to use if you're going to use wildcards in your search because they don't have any limitations. They'll allow you to put just one letter and an asterisk, and that's it. Um, that means you'll just get every single name that starts with that letter. Um, and it could be that Lev used a different given name um, on several of his censuses. You know, Lev is a very Jewish name. So maybe he went by Lewis for a time. Maybe he spelled Lewis several different ways. So try to broaden your horizons. I know it's tough to go through all of those, all of those results after you're using wildcards, but sometimes it really does give you that one thing that you need to kind of break through. Well, that is a good point because we have um we have a working theory that he went by Leo because all of a sudden as you know after he must have died all of a sudden we see the name Leo popping out for um for some of the boys. So yeah, so, that's a good point. so mom, does mom help you with your research because she just put up another place as far as researching? She said um for the entry. I know my mom at first wasn't interested in, in doing research and anything like that. And technically she still isn't, but she's very supportive of me and she asks questions a lot more than she used to. So is mom very helpful? Uh, my mom is, is very much a cheerleader. She's, she's out hustling for me. Um, <laughs> she always wants to refer people to me, which is very, which is very helpful and it makes me feel really good. So thanks mom. Um, you know, when we have people, when we had Jews living living in the Baltimore, Washington, D.C. area, we kind of assumed that they arrived at Baltimore or at Philadelphia. Um, sometimes people did arrive in New York just because it was the most common uh, port of entry at that time, um, and then worked their way south to Baltimore, Washington, D.C. That happened a lot too. So we start with the most with the closest port of entry, but unless we have the actual given the actual names that they used, we there's really no point in searching for um, arrivals manifests because yeah. we don't know. 
No, believe I'm very, very thankful that of all the places they could have rocked up, they rocked up in DC because obviously at that that time period it was a very small Jewish community, yeah. so that made the research easier. Another thing that we all chatted about before um before the show, when Donnie and I are taking on private clients, we especially African American private clients, we all we're really honest with them. Yeah. Um, because we need to we need to gauge how receptive they're going to be to what we find, um, especially if you're dealing with <clears throat> African, you know, if you're dealing with people's ancestors who were enslaved. We don't know what horror story, we don't know what stories we're going to find, whether they're going to be good, bad, positive, hor or horrific. And you touched on that a little bit about your your own pri uh, private practice. Sure, absolutely. And um, whenever some people come to me and say, "I have Eastern European Jewish heritage." Uh, I want to find out ABC, and I also want to know if I have relatives who died in the Holocaust. And the answer to that is always yes. It's just a matter of how close they were in in relationship. You know, how many degrees separated you were from them. Um, a, a study in the last few years said that all Ashkenazi Jews are between fifth and eighth cousins, and that is probably true, um, probably due to endogamy, the inter intermarriage between families. Um, and also um, this, this study you know, uh, you know, talked about how all Eastern European Jews derive from five mothers, something to that effect. So the answer is yes. Um, so when I have a new client, I always talk to them about the, the, the things that we will encounter. We will encounter poverty, we will encounter um, you know, all kinds of economic hardship. We will encounter infant mortality. Um, we might encounter maternal mortality. And we also will encounter the, the loss of massive, you know, of massive amounts of, of family um, in the Holocaust. So it's just something that we have to um, approach with a, with a degree of, 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 of honesty and sincerity. And we kind of have to steal ourselves because this is, this is the truth of the matter. And um, you know, coming off the heels of Holocaust Remembrance Day last Thursday, everybody's keenly aware of that. Um, it's just it's really important to to face those truths and to not shy away from them because this is our this is our history, this is our heritage. So, um, with that being said, I know as far as our research is, you know, doing African American research, um, there there's certain things that we have to just kind of no, as well. But we can't do what you're saying. You you said that, you know, everybody more than likely, yes, if you're going to be all related in one way or another. Mm -hmm. To a certain degree, we can't do that. We can't make that type of comment. But I also think that it's a, a misconception for a lot of African Americans where they believe that um, if we're related to Europeans, it's because of rape or this, that, and the third, when in actuality, that's not exactly true. I know people don't want to hear that, but sometimes there was a natural relationship that actually went on. Have you ever, um, in your research, found a strange, whether it's for yours personally or for a client, a, a strange relationship, one that you would not really think which went against what it was that you normally would think happened in in when fine doing Jew, Jewish research? 
Well, you, you do a lot, of, a lot of intermarriage, um, a lot of marriage outside the faith. When you when these people came to the United States, there was a lot of marriage outside the faith, um, which was not uncommon, but also not something that people really want to hear about. Um, they don't want to hear about the loss of their of the of the next generations from from the culture that that they identify with. Um, and you know, in the in the U.S., we see very interesting cases of endogamy, um, where people marry their close cousins, or you have uncle niece marriage happening. Um, that today we would we would certainly frown upon and then make us feel really uncomfortable because obviously we know the genetic repercussions of such close marriage. Um, but you know, over, you know, back in the day, um, people wanted to marry within their families so that they, so that their children would be protected. If you, if you marry your daughter to your aunt's grandson, um, they're cousins, sure, but you also know that that's a that's a kinship relationship that you already have, and you know that they're going to treat her like family. They're not going to treat her like a like a live-in servant. Um, and they're not going to try to rob her of her dowry. Um, that they're going to be responsible for her and, and care for her and protect her. So those are the kind of relationships that that we might be uncomfortable with today. Um, and and we look at them on paper and we go ew. But <laughs> but back then it was really really common and seen as a way to protect the next generation. Oh, trust! If any two people know about endogamy, it is Donnie and I, because we're on the we're always on the phone. We're always doing our research together, and we're like, "Oh no, you're not going to believe." He, he or she married their second cousin, and we're like, yeah. oh, "Okay." <laughs> I mean, and that 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 was probably the hardest thing for me to get past, as far as getting into genealogical research, is is seeing first and second cousins marrying each other. That. I didn't struggle. I think we talked about this during the tech check. I didn't. I didn't struggle with, um, with any of the, the 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 possible rapes that may have occurred. The just all of the different things that could have happened. I didn't really struggle with that. But when I found out that there were cousins marrying cousins, that stuff like. <laughs> Yes, yeah, so these are easier than intermarriage, you know. Oh my God, you! I mean, I was just, I guess, and I think it was. I think it has a lot to do with how when I first saw it, because when I first saw it, I'm in the process of like building my building this tree up, and I have my aunt on one side, and I have her father and stuff, and I'm looking at her husband, and her husband was. Her he's husband's parents. Yeah, I was like, he's already in the spot. Like, what is going <laughs> I was so confused. Yeah, and you know, most genealogy programs aren't set up for endogamy, so they don't no. know how to how to um, show it visually. So what I do a lot of times, what I end up doing a lot is making manual trees for my clients so that they can see exactly how the endogamic relationships work out and sometimes you have to do several different trees to illustrate how people are related in several different ways well you know who is set up best for it my heritage because that's what i was in when i found it because okay. it, it actually had my 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 mother's aunt it was my yeah it was my mother's aunt and 
then the first cousin. But then right above her was her parents. And right above him was his parents. But I knew that his that his father and her father were brothers. And then right above them was their parents. And it was the same yeah. people. Yeah, yeah, so I'm looking at it like... And that it was it was in there that it, it was in my heritage that showed me, yeah, these two people are related and this is how they're related. And I'm looking at that like, what in the world did I just drop into? Like, like <laughs> I didn't know what was going on. I called people to me. I called Brian. I'm like, this is not I, I'm not understanding. So it really threw me off. And that's one I think that's one of the one of the things about researching that continues to just kind of takes me for a loop is the endogamy. It's just, it's a, it's amazing with us. Well, yeah. put it this way, between us, Donnie's tree and my tree, we, we, we laugh about it, but it's kind of serious. We actually broke ancestry because yeah. it, it, because our endogamy, just on the American side, going all the way deep into that early colonial period, it's just yeah. groups of people marrying each other over and over and over. So Ancestry Blessed is trying to work out, okay, so this person is your great grandparent, also your great uncle or aunt, also a cousin in like three different ways, yeah. all depending on which way you're hitting them. And it's like, you know what? I can't be asked. If your ancestors couldn't be bothered to not marry their cousins, don't expect you to try to work it out. Yeah, because Ancestry actually has, you know how, you know how when you build your tree on Ancestry, and, and it shows the connection with the lines. We can have one person have 10 different lines coming from them. And it gets to the point where Ancestry actually repeats that person's name yep. in oh the God. tree. So it can I'm my own grandpa in your, in your head. Yeah, yeah so we, can't, we, we really have, it, I mean, yeah, the best words to say, we've broken Ancestry. And they haven't realized it yet. We've been trying to tell them. But they're not, they're not listening, and we've broken ancestry without a doubt. I know it. I believe it. I absolutely believe it. Um, you know, when you have small populations in a certain place, people got to marry someone. So, mm. and it even happened. You know, even with Jewish communities in the U.S., it happened. Um, you know, a lot of my mom's family came from Western Pennsylvania. They settled in Western Pennsylvania, and the you know the lit back Jewish community in Western Pennsylvania was big enough. Were healthy marriages, but the, everybody was still related. So, wow. um, so I have folks who are related to, related to me, related to each other three and four times, um, and it's impossible to really depict it on ancestry in the way that I would prefer to do it. So maybe I'll just load everything onto my heritage and see what they do. Yeah, my heritage. I I, I recommend that site to people. Oh, yeah, it's, it's expensive, but. Yeah. When I can, because that's like one of the only places that I've ever seen where they actually, when you're trying to list um, what a person is to you, they go as deep as we were just friends and we had a cat and we had a child together. Right. I mean, they, it, it does that. It has friends. It has partner for um, for the gay community. I mean, it it covers everything. Everything. I I love it. It's expensive, but I think that's one of the best programs out where you can actually build your family tree, have people, and then it, it connects to a website um, and it allows you to build things like cards 
keep birthdays. I mean, it, it's, it's oh, yeah. awesome. Yeah, it's an awesome site. It's an, it's awesome. And now to connect the DNA to it, yeah, it's great. My heritage is really fantastic um, because they, they are also in the business of, um, of archiving and creating records. Like very recently, um, they just completed a, you know, a national effort to photograph and, uh, and document all of the headstones, all of the burials in Israel. So oh, every wow. one. Uh, so now it's just opened up this entire universe. Uh, for people who know that their family has moved to Israel at some point um, and allowed us to see what's there without trying to trying to negotiate with a, with a researcher there or somebody who's just willing to go and photograph a headstone if you know that it's there. So, you know, understanding that not, that not everybody is, is traditionally buried, you know, they still have cremation, they still have all kinds of different stuff, but if you know that your folks lived in Israel, there's a good shot that they were buried in Israel, and now you have a chance of finding them. Well, I'm going to say the the one thing that I still find challenging for me on my heritage is doing triangulation with my Jewish relatives. Yeah. Now, perhaps my DC and in Maryland's Jewish relations are really happy that we, me and my family exist because we only have Jewish in one place. So they know that if a Jewish cousin, if a Jewish DNA cousin's matching me as well as them, that can like narrow the search. But as we were saying in the rehearsal, I have a ridiculous number of fourth cousins, fourth and fifth cousins, hundreds, just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. Yeah, and so you have half what Ashkenazi Jews all over the world have when they see, when they come up with their DNA results. We have, 10, 20,000 fifth to eighth cousins. And you go, how is that possible? Because it's not physically possible. And the answer is, well, endogamy. That's why that's possible. And something else that you were mentioning that's, that's worth people keeping in mind is the practice of having children. So at some point, you know, even that really that earliest generation that we got to, we could see that you know my Jewish relatives were having a very large family. They got to this country, and then it just drastically dropped down to maybe four or five kids. Yeah, yeah we we'll talked about that. that today. Yeah. Yeah. So the immigrant generation in the United States tended to have larger families, um, but as their as their children grew up, they opted not to marry. Uh, they opted to have only one or two children, um, and the the Jewish birth rate in the United States plummeted, um, and that is a, a that has to do a lot with um, with marriage outside the faith, but that also has to do with um, economics. Um, without a, a an insular shtetl environment, you didn't have a lot of the support in raising many many children as your forebears did. You didn't have somebody to watch your kids for free. You didn't have um, a way to, you know, a lot of times you didn't have a way to send them to school for free or to pay for all of their all of their books and clothes. So it just came down to the fact that people couldn't afford to have so many children. And we also have um, lowered infant mortality in the United States. So they just weren't taking as many chances with having children. They realizing that these big families raise all of their kids. So they understood that they didn't need to have babies just in case the other one died. Yeah. So, and I guess kind of the sense that what I'm getting is 
There are a lot of similarities between Jewish genealogy and African-American genealogy, whereas at, you get to a point where the genealogy is standard for everybody. But you do get to that point where you have to literally start thinking outside of the box to start trying to find trying to find those older generations of of, of the family. Right. Um, and you were going through through um, discussed some of those ways. But again, even looking at the census returns, it's so important to get every piece of information that you can get. That's how Claudia and I realized at what point our ancestors arrived, because I think it actually gave how long they'd actually been in the country, you know, where, where were you born? How long have you lived here? Okay, well, we can subtract those two numbers to get a rough year to start looking at manifests. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, you can also gain that kind of information from vital records, depending on um, what the local uh, forms were like. And I know here in New York, um, the earlier death certificates, and I'm talking before 1940, they asked where that person was born and how long they had been in New York City and how long they had been in the United States. And sometimes those years were different. So it's really key in a lot of searches to understand that People didn't just come to New York and stay in New York. They came all over the United States or they came to Canada and then they came to New York. So gleaning every single every single bit of information and going back, even if you think that you that you've gotten everything that you can from a piece of from a piece of evidence, your the successive evidence that you gather might help inform you about that earlier one. So it's always really important to go back and review. Okay, well, we're actually at the hour. Um, I just wanted to open it up to see, you know, you guys are normally bombarding us with questions. So any, do you have any, um, any last questions to ask, Rachel? We don't have questions up here, but we have some hellos from uh, Ashley Manning, uh, Lisa Wade, which is a family member. She said hello from Atlanta. Uh, I actually had um, our cousin Carla trying to move it down. I think she made a comment. Yeah, she said that this is a great segment. I'm more confident in my research with this new info. So yeah, that's just really great to see and, and hear. And then you also had thank yous when you answered the question from both um, Mary Wright and from Michael Sussman, who asked you know that earlier question about dodge drafts and um, finding those particular things and of course. So we, with, this was a very, um, very good show. I'm very appreciative to you. Is there any other information that you want to share that would definitely help people move forward, or more information about your particular, um, your particular business? Well, let's see. Uh, I know that we, we spoke about all of this, all of the special interest groups, and we spoke about surnames. We spoke about, um, oh. Okay, so we did speak about something that's very particular to Jewish genealogy, um, and that is names, um, given names from you know, being trans, basically translated from Yiddish or Hebrew to English. Um, there were lots of different types of uh, names that people would adopt in lieu of their of their foreign-sounding given name. Um, but it usually happened that you know if your name was Razel, 
in Eastern Europe that you would take on this name that sounded like your name, like Rose. Or if your name was Chana, and it's and it start, you know, the initial sound is that is that glottal ch sound. It was usually omitted altogether, and you would take on a name like Anna. But it was usually a name that sounded similar or started with the same letter as your original given name. Um, so when I when I know that I'm looking for a family that um, had someone named Shmuel and Yitzchak and Razel, I know I'm looking for a family group that might be named Sam, Isaac, and Rose. So oh, wow. uh, yeah, so I'm using my knowledge of the Yiddish and Hebrew name lexicon to kind of translate them over to the names that were typically adopted um, once they came to the United States. So it, you know, it could be Isaac or it could be Irving. It could be Sam or it could be Solomon, which are certainly not the same name, but a lot of times, you know, people uh, adopted English given names that were not the direct translation of their um, original given names. So it's really important to keep that in mind. My mom uh, chiming in that my great grandmother's given name was Hoddle and she became Ida. So yeah, I love your mother. I just want to, I, I love her. I love you, mom. Name. Seriously. Yeah. <laughs> the D in the name and she and then translated over into Ida. So um, it was you know very common to see these family groups together. And I know like from my research, my years and years of research, I know instinctively that that's the family that I'm looking for. But it might take some convincing for other folks who are not so familiar. Um, so intimately familiar with that Yiddish and Hebrew name lexicon to really say, oh yeah, well, these are the folks that we are looking for. So okay. I know you gave us um, a very impressive list of, of resources. I'm wondering in that list, is there a website that can kind of guide people about what the most common transcriptions would would be? Um, I mean, there are so there are so many websites that have these little these little um, uh, sections about about given names and the, and the transition of given names. Um, Avotenu is a great resource. I know they have a lot of different blog blog posts about names. Um, Blood and Frogs is another. Avotenu. Um, I didn't send it to you, but I'll send it to you later. Um, okay. And there's another, another blog that I really like called Blood and Frogs. And um, that's an allusion to the, the 10 plagues of Egypt. Um, and uh, that blog also also has a couple posts about given names and common um, common Hebrew to English translations once they got to the United States. Um, well, we but, do have a um, we have a quick question from Elise Ray, and she said, "Will you be in Cleveland in July?" Uh, no, sadly, I will not be in Cleveland in July. Um, I'm sorry that I'm gonna that I'm gonna miss. I think it's I IAJGS in, in Cleveland in July. Um, yes. But no, I won't be there. Um, I will be here in New York City. So if you have any questions while you're in Cleveland, shoot me an email, and I'll be sure to answer them. Cool. Okay. And you also have a Facebook page for yeah. your Silverman Genealogical Services, and we'll be posting a link to that. I do, I have a Facebook page, I have a website. There are lots of different ways to contact me. Um, and I'd love to hear from anybody. And um, if you have a project that you need some help on, I'm happy to lend a hand. Um, there's another question that just popped up from Claudia and she asked, uh, what is your top book recommendation? Wait. 
uh, and books are my my favorite book because it because it alludes to my family is the Lurie Legacy, and it's just about um, Litvak Jews, the specific families of the Luries and the Epsteins. Um, but when it comes to genealogical writing, I find it kind of dry. So um, it's not, you know, I, I don't read a lot of genealogical books unless they're very specific to what I'm looking at. Ooh, I actually have one last one because I found this fascinating. It was something that I didn't, I didn't know about. You were also speaking in terms of, of the Jewish faith that there are certain families that don't marry other kind of families. That I just thought people might find that interesting in terms of their research. Um, okay, so if you have a Jewish background, you probably already know um, Jewish families um, within the larger Jewish community might descend from. Uh, from the Kohanim, which were the priests um, in the temple during the temple period, um, or the Levites, who were the helpers of the priests in the temple during the temple period, or the rest of greater Israel. Uh, so um, in, in the diaspora, the Kohanim and the Levites took on other roles within the community as spiritual leaders and sometimes as civic leaders. Uh, so the rules uh, um, when it came to marrying, when it came to marriage for Levites and Kohanim were, were quite different from the rest of the community. Um, and these are rules that are still observed by, by some religious communities um, all around the world. You have Orthodox Jews who are, who are very strict about these rules and they're, and they're quite sacred to that community. So if you have a family with the last name Cohen or Cohn um, or Kahanovitz um, or Kat, you, you can be sure, almost certain, that they descend from this tribe of Cohen. And um, if they were if they were observing these rules, then Kohanim could not marry um, a, Kohan, a Kohanic man could not marry a divorcee, could not marry somebody who was adopted. Um, they they're often stuck to marrying Levites, you know, Levite women. Um, uh, Kohen women would very would most often marry Kohen men, um, just so that they could. Uh, because that kind of line was actually a paternal lineage. It only came from from the husband. So for, for me, I did not marry a Kohen, so um, my children would not be considered Kohanim. But they would certainly be considered Jewish, halakhically speaking, because I'm I, a Jewish woman and their mother. So it, it's kind of convoluted, and you'll see indications of Kohanim or Levite on sometimes on headstones um, when you see like the two hands together like this on a headstone that means that that family were, were oh. um, and if you see um, a, a, a hand holding a pitcher like in another hand beneath it that's a levite um, because they were teaching the priests with the uh, with the rituals in the temple and so that's indicative of that kind of activity so there you go a little factoid about about the priestly tribe no, well, that's really, really helpful because I will be chatting with my cousins about about that probably this week. Because yeah. um, again, in, ter in terms of thinking outside of the box, that could be another filter for us to, you know, we have you know, we have five surnames that that we know of mm -hmm. uh, within the last couple of generations to try to figure out what kind of families they were to get a better understanding of back in Lithuania and Belarus. 
who were the more likely families that they were that they were marrying, and also looking at our DNA matches to kind of make sense sense of sure. that thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that there's some work being done at MyHeritage and probably at Family Tree DNA um, on the on kind of tracing back the what they call the Priestly gene, um, which is a, a marker that was carried on a Y chromosome that might indicate um, a Kahanic lineage. So there are some people who take more interest in this than others. Um, and the, the heritage of, of rabbis and educators um, and community leaders was sometimes very closely, uh, very closely uh, kept. Um, the, the book that I mentioned, the, Epstein, the, the Lori Legacy, um, actually show, is a, it has a lot of family tree diagrams that show generations back and back and back and back of rabbis. Um, so they really wanted to show that the the lineage, or in, in Yiddish we would say the yichis of this family was very long and deep and um, and respected. Cool. Well, thank you so much for um for coming on. Um, thank coming you. Yeah, um, this is very open eye opening and and I'm very interesting because I know nothing about it, but now I can say. That I know a little bit. And I love your mom. I just want to say that one more time. Because <laughs> <laughs> we're firm believers that genealogists from different backgrounds and ethnicity, even though we have some unique challenges that, yes. that we have to face in our research, we can all stand to learn from each other. Oh, um, right. you know, I didn't know that we actually had a lot of challenges in common, African-American genealogy and Jewish genealogy. So this is really great. Yeah, that, and, and that's the reason for, you know, why we're doing, um, She mom says that she loves you. <laughs> I just, yeah, she, she put that up there. So I wanted that's to say that. <laughs> but yeah, um, that's one of the reasons why we do what we, what, what we dedicated our, our our last season to, which was trying to make people, trying to get people to understand that even though we come from different cultures, different backgrounds, um, our researching strategies end up in one way or another being the same because right. we have right. to do certain things in order to get this. And it, it may be something that you do in your particular type of style of research, that we can use in our style of research and, and vice versa. So it is really, it's, it's stuff that's not being focused on right now. Genealogy is this really big thing. It's really big. It's, it's huge on everyone, but they only focus on one particular style of genealogical research. Right. We're all compartmentalized in our own little ethnic group. But the fact of the matter is that we're all families. So we may as well share. Are, yes. Are yes. 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 But I do appreciate you being here. Um, Thank you, guys. And we'll make sure that we remember everybody. You can get in touch with um, Rachel at www.silvermangenealogy. I'm putting it up right now. <laughs> it's silvermangenealogy.com. That's right. All right, so you guys can definitely um, reach her there. She has a contact, and if you have any questions about anything, you can definitely do that. And you have a Facebook page as well, am I correct? Yeah. 
And we will definitely share yep. that that mm -hmm. stuff, that information will be placed in um, the comment section. So thank you again, Rachel, for coming in. And Brian, I'm so glad you were able to chime in. It's a good thing I'm stubborn. That's all I have to say. <laughs> Absolutely. So Brian, do you want to talk about our next special before we go? Yep. So as Donia probably mentioned, um, season three properly starts in September, but we have a couple of specials for you between now and then. And our next show is going to be the 24th of May with Catherine Knight, who's written an amazing book about the 20 and odd Africans who were brought over in 1619 in Virginia. Um, she's made some wonderful discoveries on that. Um, I'm not going to say too much because I don't want to, <laughs> don't want to preempt the show. Um, right. But yeah, it's another part of American history that's got lots of question marks and no one's really sure and some people think they are and they aren't. Um, and she's here to, to talk about that. Mom said, thank you, Donya and Brian. <laughs> oh, thank you, Mom. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, man. All right. So, okay, well, um, I guess we're going to say goodbye to you guys now. Um, thanks for, you know, just really listening in. This was a great, great show, Rachel. You did an awesome, awesome job. I'm very you know, happy. There was someone in the comments that um, I think her last name was Combs. She, oh, she was very, well, she says she's very proud of you. I want to make sure I say that because I think it got too far down and I couldn't find it. But she did say that she's very proud of you. And um, thank you again. All right, thank, thank you, guys. you very much. All right. All right, you guys. Bye. We'll see you on the 24th. Bye. Have the rest of your day.